0: The gospel changes everything. If someone were to ask you the simple question, what is the purpose of the Bible? Why do we have this? They just walked up to you and you're walking into Walmart and somebody comes and says, hey, I have a question for you. What's the purpose of the Bible? How would you answer Well, every author has a reason for writing. Every speaker has a reason for speaking, and often for several different reasons. One of those is the author or the speaker has something to say that they think that you or we need to hear. And the second might be that they think that there's something that we might want to hear, and we might actually uh, give them a little... Financial benefit in return for hearing or reading what we have to say to be compensated. I'm sure that we would all say that the reason we have the Bible is that God had something, has something to say to us that He thinks we need to hear. But what does He want us to hear? Colossians 1. 19 through 21 explains it. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you were at one time strangers and enemies in your minds as expressed through your evil deeds. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy without blemish and blameless before him the bible is god revealing himself to the world it's as many have said it's a love story with the intent of us loving him in return Ben played the simple song in the offertory, Jesus loves me, this I know. What's the next line? For the Bible tells me so. Maybe you tend, as many do, to look at the Bible as an instruction manual. It's a long list of do's and more don'ts than do's. That if done satisfactorily, will make the God to whom we really have no choice, but we're responsible to, happy, or at least accepting. But if we look at the Bible as God's love letter or love story to us and to the world, we can look at the Old Testament as his love story to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from that story, we learn much about how he loves the world and how he loves us today. He wants to be close to us. He loves us. He cares about us. And he wants us to be close to him. But it's interesting, we enter life holding him at arm's length. In the New Testament, we learn that we as followers or disciples of Christ are not just children, but collectively we are called the bride of Christ. But there's a problem. And I think Isaiah says it best. He said, Woe is me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Jesus is waiting for and looking for a pure, spotless bride. And the closest picture we have of that on earth, the greatest example of that relationship is between a husband and a wife, or a bride and a groom. Paul speaks to that here in Ephesians which we'll get to in a minute, which we've covered in weeks past. It's also spoken of elsewhere in the New Testament where two flawed people, people with unclean lips, and it goes on from there, join together as one. But this groom, Christ himself, is different. He is altogether perfect. He is altogether holy. The problem is I am not, and you are not. But still he loves us so much that in fact he is making us through his Holy Spirit into that pure, spotless bride. We can't clean ourselves up, but he can if we allow him. So that's the story of the gospel. That's the good news. And the gospel Changes everything. Last week, as you'll recall, Jim dove into the subject, what's in store for 2024? And frankly, it looks rather ominous, doesn't it? The threat is real. It's not imagined. It's not conspiracy. It's real. There is a threat from every side. (coughs) Yesterday morning after an unusually good night's rest. Not last night, the night before, sorry. The first thing to enter my mind when I woke up as I laid there, I said, Lord, we're still here. How we look at these threats in the world is critical. We either look at them in fear or in faith. Ross King, some of you have, you know who that is. He's a singer that I believe Stephanie and Hope introduced some of us to. I'd never heard of him before until really a couple weeks ago. But he sings a song, lots of songs, of course, and they're all good, very good. They're different, but they're good. One of the songs is titled titled The Things I'm Afraid of. Are there things to be afraid of? (laughs) But a line in that song, the theme of that song is, the things I am afraid of are afraid of you, speaking of Christ. So as we think of these threats in the world, real threats, the things that I'm afraid of, (laughs) they're afraid of him, and he's got my back, and he's got your back. That is a very comforting thought because we are the bride of Christ. But a bride does does not just sit in her parlor painting her fingernails. Nothing wrong with, don't lose me here. She doesn't just sit there waiting for her groom to come walking down the sidewalk No, she's busy doing wifey things. You ever heard that term? I think you know what it means. And if we have a proper relationship with him, with our heavenly father, with our groom, so to speak, that will, it can't but spill out in how we interact with each other and those outside of the body of Christ. But one thing we need to remember, as people with unclean lips living among other people with similar the similar ailment, we won't always get things right. What we say and sometimes what we do won't always come out right and won't be perceived as right, they will be misunderstood. But genuine love understands that I am a man of unclean lips. I won't get everything right, and you won't either. But in order for this relationship to grow and to thrive and to survive, I just have to love, you have to love me anyway. I'll put it that way. For some of you, for one of you, it's really hard sometimes. But for most of you, it's a challenge at times. But we have to live that way. We have to love each other knowing who we are. Despite our flaws, we are the bride of Christ and we need to live like it. And it spills out in those relationships. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We've received this calling. God has called us, we are called as the bride of Christ. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Diligently keeping the unity or the harmony of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. So we believe that the Scripture is God's love story. It is His full and final revelation to us. It is truth, and it speaks to every area of life. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Because I can see it not only because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything else. I know it takes a little. took a little bit for me to, to, to contemplate what he's trying to say. We believe in the sun because it exposes everything else and we can see everything else. Last night we were tracking a deer and it was dark and it was foggy and it was cold. But right now it'd be much easier. Truth revealed in Scripture touches all areas of life. All relationships in life. The Ten Commandments, it's interesting, think about that. The first commandment is our relationship with God. The rest of them is our relationship with each other. Amazing. So with all that in mind, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We've been going through Ephesians, as you well know. I think somebody said painstakingly. We'll get through it eventually, but then we'll just go on to something else. So, Ephesians, as we know, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church that was in the city of Ephesus. It's in modern-day Turkey. It was a prominent city, and it was written to those he called the faithful in Christ Jesus. So he wrote this to people like us, sitting in church together. Worshiping God, loving God, living life together. So this letter was written to them. And he also says, to those who were being filled with the Holy Spirit. So these were people that were alive in Christ. We've already talked about these relationships in past weeks, before we got to Christmas. The relationship between wives and husbands, between children and parents, But Paul adds another relationship that was of great importance in his time and ours as well. Remember, the gospel changes everything. If you don't get that line yet, you will by the end of the sermon, okay? So let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Slaves. Remember, if Paul was at the church of Ephesus, and they were in a building like this, and we were also he was at the pulpit, and he was speaking, and he was reading his letter, he would look at the audience, and he would say, slaves, some of you would be slaves, picture that, obey your human masters with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not like those who do their work only when someone is watching as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Obey with enthusiasm as those serving the Lord and not people, because you know that each person, whether slave or free, if he does something good, this will be rewarded by the Lord. So what do we do with this passage? We have three options, I think. There's probably more, but I'll just leave it at three. One is to just simply make it about the employee's employer relationship. Some translations use the word servants or bond servants. But that meaning of slaves is defined further by the word master. The word master, the title master, means possessor, owner, or lord, Now, it does speak to employees and employers, but not directly. Paul is speaking to slaves, people who were bought and sold by other humans. So the second option, one is we can just say, well, it's not talking about slaves and just shuffle on, or the second option is to just write it off as irrelevant. Well, it just it doesn't involve me, so who cares? It's not applicable to me or my time. And we have a more complete understanding, of course, today than they would have then, so, and we really never liked Paul to begin with, did we? <laughs> Some people feel that way. The third is, we can simply accept it as written and understand it in its historical context. The question is often asked by skeptics and non believers Does the Bible condone slavery? Maybe that question comes from a twisting of Jesus' words when he said that whoever is not against us is for us. So if you aren't openly against something, in this case, slavery, then you must be for it. Some people do the same thing with certain lifestyles. Well, Jesus never spoke against it, so it must be okay. That's a twisting of Scripture. And we are not permitted to do that. So the thinking goes like this. Since the Bible does not emphatically teach against slavery, it condones it and actually encourages it. Now, we need to be clear. There have been times in history in this country where Christians use that as a reason to own slaves, a twisting of Scripture. So how do we answer the question, does the Bible condone slavery? Obviously, the safest route is saying well, what Paul really meant was people that work for other people. That's what he was really talking about. But that's not what he said, and that's what he meant. Paul told the Colossians, pray that we may have opportunity to speak about this mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. He was in prison. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Can you? Yeah, there we go. Live wisely among those who are not believers... And make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive or seasoned with salt so that you may have the right response for everyone. How we say things, how we answer is to be flavorful, not bitter. We are attempting to draw non-believers in. In. to the family of God, not to drive them away. Let me say it bluntly. The words we say and the attitude we display either reflects a God who is angry or a God who loves. So let's go back to slavery. It was a normal common part of life in Paul's day. Actually, throughout human history, slavery has been the norm, okay? It's just been a normal part of human history. When the first slaves came to the shores of this continent, that wasn't the first time that slaves ever existed. It's been a part of history. What did happen is this was the first nation to actually go to war to stop it. That's another subject. Is slavery evil? Of course it is. Should it be stopped? Of course it should. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the issue how to live after coming to Christ. The whole of the the book. He's writing to the church at Corinth, telling them how they should live after coming to Christ. After being the bride of Christ, now how do we live that out? In chapter 7, he answers some of their questions. They were wondering... Since the gospel changes everything, how about if I'm married to an unbeliever? Or if I'm a slave? Does my salvation free me from those human relationships? Paul says, no, not necessarily. As far as it depends on you, live at peace. And in regard to slavery... He says, if you can gain your freedom lawfully, then do it. But you have no right to run. Another question. I have lots of questions this morning. How many of you make it a practice to kind of read a psalm every day? Anybody? My dad used to do that. He read a psalm and a proverb and then other things every single day. How many of you go to the book of Philemon and read it frequently? Nobody? I don't either. None of us do. Do we even know what the book of Philemon is? Well, let me explain that a little bit. It was a letter that Paul wrote to a slave owner in the church of Colossae. And the letter was dealing with a runaway slave named Onesimus. Here, Paul had a a perfect, ideal opportunity to address in a practical way the evils of slavery. But he didn't. Onesimus, who was in... Jail with Paul for some crimes. Onesimus must have done something to get thrown into jail. Paul is there for preaching Christ and him crucified. While Onesimus and Paul are in prison, Paul leads Onesimus to Jesus. And he becomes part of the bride of Christ. And Paul learns that Onesimus is a runaway slave. So what is Paul to do? When we know the letter he compels Onesimus to return to his owner Philemon who is also a Christian Paul appeals to Philemon as a brother actually as his spiritual father he appeals to Philemon to accept Onesimus back into his service and consider him more than just a slave But as a brother. Notice what Paul is doing. I'm sure that this gave Philemon some sleepless nights. What was his reaction when he saw Onesimus walking up to his house? In Roman law, Philemon had the legal right to have Onesimus crucified. But the gospel changes everything. Interestingly enough, we are never told the outcome of what happened to Onesimus or Philemon. But the larger question for us this morning, we need to ask why are we here? Why is the church here? Why is the bride of Christ still here? In Matthew chapter 22, there was a delegation of Pharisees that went to Jesus, having learned that the Sadducees, the other group, had been unsuccessful in their attempt to trap Jesus in his words dealing with taxation. And one of them, a lawyer, one of the Pharisees, it says, was a lawyer who, lawyers are very big on words, aren't they? We call it legalese. Why don't you just say it in plain English? I think it's because there's a sinister, because they know we can't understand it, so they can catch us in something we say or sign. But anyway, words are extremely important. And so this man comes to Jesus with a question. What is the greatest commandment in the law? And without hesitation, Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And I added, and since we're on the subject, Jesus added, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If the gospel changes everything, then the way to change everything is through the gospel. Is that true? If the gospel changes everything, then the way to change everything is the gospel. I think it's true. Human relationships do not come first. Slavery was not the big issue in the Roman Empire. Life in this world is always to be regarded as being of secondary importance. Why? Because it's temporary. Is it important? Of course it's important. Very important. But our and all of mankind's allegiance is first to be to God, then to each other. Jesus never said to go out into the world and stop the evils of slavery, abortion, murder, human trafficking, child abuse, alcoholism, drug abuse. The list goes on for infinity, it seems like. But to do what? To make lost people found. To make dead people alive. Because the gospel changes everything. How many of you heard the term Christian nationalism? How many hands? 20 hands. My guess is we have 20 different definitions of what Christian nationalism is. This is according, quote according to the Gospel Coalition. Christian nationalism has, became a, has become a junk box into which everyone piles his own conceptions. Three dominant perspectives on Christian nationalism have arisen over the past several years. Some equate Christian nationalism with rioting at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Which yesterday was the third anniversary of that, and it wasn't a riot, but I won't get into that. But it could have been; it might have been. That's see, we don't even can't even agree on that. Others say it, it's an any attempt to enforce God's law in a country. Christian nationalism, by some, is an attempt to enforce God's law. In a country. Others claim it's advocating for Christian values on issues such as abortion. How you view the movement depends almost entirely on your circles, who you associate with. Isn't that interesting? So we could say, well, what is Christian nationalism? Well, it depends. Here's another question, as I said lots of those this morning. Can you legalize morality? I've had this conversation with Wayne a few times. I've casually mentioned in the past, even argued, I admit, that you can. You can legalize morality. We do it all the time, or at least we used to but it will ultimately fail. Why? Because the only way to maintain that morality is by force. It does nothing to change the human heart. We have a law in this country says that it is illegal to murder another person. Are there any murders ever? Of course there are. The only way to maintain it, it has to be by force. I want to read something from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor in Britain back in the 50s and 60s, and I think he died in the 70s. But listen to what he says. Now, you have to understand, when I was a kid, the biggest threat was the Soviet Union. The arms race had been started before I was born. So there was a lot of people that we heard about that were building underground bunkers because the Soviets, they had actually amassed nuclear weapons and they could travel to the mainland of the United States. And so we were kind of concerned about that. So people would build bunkers. So there was a threat. So this isn't anything new. Threats have been around forever. So he writes soon after, you know, during kind of that time. We hear so much today about defending Western civilization against various forms of attack. That is all wrong. As a Christian, I am not primarily interested in Western civilization. I am interested in the kingdom of God. And I am as anxious that men behind the Iron Curtain should be saved as that men on this side of the Iron Curtain. Should be saved. We must not take up a position of antagonism towards those whom we want to win for Christ. If we spend the whole of our time talking against them, we will never win them. That is why I never preach a so called temperance sermon. I want to see drunkards converted. Our business is not to denounce drink. It is to get the poor drunkard to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because that alone can deliver him. It's interesting, even our founding fathers of this nation understood this concept. John Adams, the second president of this country, said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So the question we could ask ourselves, is our culture, is, are the people of this nation by and large, are they moral and religious people? Here's another quote. James Madison. He was our fourth president. He wrote that our Constitution requires sufficient virtue among men for self-government. Hear that? Sufficient virtue. Otherwise, nothing less than the change of despotism can restrain them from destroying and devouring one another. You can't, you can't change the world by laws. The founders understood the fallen human depravity of man, and they only did what they could do. It's interesting, that's why so many of our early colleges and universities, Ivy League schools, who are now a hotbed of everything that's depraved, they were founded to train young men and one, young women in the Scriptures to go out and to make disciples because the gospel changes everything. So I need to close. I'm going to go back to Jim's title last week. What's in store for 2024? Well, we pray for peace, don't we? We pray for civility. And by some accounts, we're going to need a lot of that this year. We pray for righteousness I believe that we as Christians are to be a part of our civil society. We have something to say, and the world needs to hear it. Who sits in the White House or the State House matters. Who runs the Department of Justice, the FBI, the CIA, the IRS, and the EPA? All those matter. But we as followers of Christ must always remember to keep first things first. I need to remember that, right, Rob? (laughs) I need to remember that because I can get all heated and angry. The gospel changes everything. Now just imagine. I, I was telling Ruth the other day, yesterday. Just imagine when Apostle Paul was going throughout that region and persecuting Christians Saul of Tarsus and the people the church was praying lord free us from this enemy lord just take him out <laughs> think what the church would be like today if the if god had taken the apostle paul out we wouldn't have half of our new testament so imagine What would happen in this nation or any nation where the one in the White House or the State House or the Department of Justice or the FBI or the CIA or the EPA or the IRS knew that they gave an answer to God Almighty? Then the relationship between the citizens would be completely different. We pray for that. So, What's in store for 2024? I don't know, but bring it on because the gospel changes everything. Amen? Amen? All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, it is, it is, it is light. It is, it is truth. I don't have words for it. It's your love letter to us. Thank you for loving us because we are not lovable creatures, but you still love us and you are making us into your image to be a spotless bride that you can present to your son, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Father, help us to live today, tomorrow, this week, this year in light of the gospel changes everything. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. For your sake, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.